This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. We spend most of our waking lives at work in occupations often chosen by our unthinking younger selves. And yet we rarely ask how we got there or what our occupations mean to us. In his new book, The Pleasures and Sorrows of Work, our guest today, Alain de Baton, explores the joys and perils of the modern workplace. Baton's books, including How Proust Can Change Your Life and The Art of Travel, have been described as a philosophy of everyday life Alain de Baton, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you very much. And how are you today? Good, fantastic, thank you. Has it been a, a, uh, a long work day for you? Uh, <laughs> um, yes, uh, not too bad though, but yeah, my work, like everybody else's, has its, uh, has its pleasures and sorrows. Uh, do you have more pleasures or sorrows today? <laughs> <laughs> today, today, more pleasures. Oh, very good. Now, how did you come to write about a book about work? Is it did work finally well, get to you? <laughs> I mean, partly what, one of the things that, was, um, that, that kind of stimulated me and encouraged me was the, the realization that there are actually very few books written um, in a kind of literary way about work. Of course, there are endless uh, economics textbooks and uh, you know, analyses of the global economy. But in terms of what work actually feels like, um, what it's like to work uh, in different occupations, there's very little out there. And, uh, you know, if, if a proverbial Martian came to a bookstore and um, looked at what was on offer and tried to imagine what the human race was like just from looking, let's imagine, at the fiction table, they'd come away thinking that human beings basically spend all their time falling in love, <laughs> occasionally, uh, uh, you know, squabbling with their families, maybe murdering one another, but, but never going to work because people, people don't seem to go to work very much. Is that because we're trying to avoid the subject of our work? Because yes, I think so. I, mean, I think there's a kind of romantic prejudice which suggests that real life is your love life and uh, you know, it's, it's somehow that you, you can't make anything interesting out of the workplace. But I, I think that's totally wrong. It has to be wrong. Yes. And it's, it's funny, too, here, at least in, in this country, in, in America, uh, people usually start a conversation by saying, well, what do you do? And, and, they, right. and they don't mean, you know, what, what do you do in your love life? They mean, what, is, what, is, what do you do for work? That's right. That's right. And so work is, in, in, a, in a strange way, it's not just a way of making an income. Um, but of course, it is that as well. But it's also the root of your identity, which is what makes unemployment so difficult. It's not just that you, you're going to have less money. It's that you're literally going to be stripped of, um, you know, a way of identifying yourself to other people. This is incidentally also what happens whenever people uh, withdraw from the, uh, the marketplace, the workplace, and look after children, or maybe they've got elderly relatives to look after. Um, you know, people literally can't say, I'm, I'm looking after children and I'm working, you know, which is a preposterous idea for anyone who's actually ever spent uh, even an hour looking after a child. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's, it's a strange, you know, there are many sort of paradoxes. We have a really hard time recognizing that uh, people kind of exist outside of uh, of wage labor. There's a time, um, and I'm curious what what you think about this. Is that there's a time when if you ask somebody what they do, it told you a lot about them. It didn't just tell you what they did. And as you said, it sort of we, we look at work as it's something that defines us, but it oftentimes tells us about their 
their their financial status, their educational level, uh, their outlook on life. It tells us a lot. Is it getting better or worse? Are we getting more away from what it tells us about yeah. the totality I mean, of a person or less? The, the, you know, the, the really big question, I, I guess, in the back of people's minds, and this is how we often view ourselves, is am I a goodie or a baddie, uh, to put it in a kind of, at its simplest level? I does does my ability to answer the question, what do you do, uh, um, lead me to seem like a good, a good person or a bad person in the eyes of, uh, of the world? And I think that there's no sign that people are becoming more complex about this. Um, on the whole, people are really closely identified with what is on their business card. And very crudely, the more you earn, the better, the better you are, you know, the more interesting you are um, as a human being. And that has to be the wrong way to look at things, because as we all know, um, you know, it's not as simple as that. We, we, you know, we don't live in a world where the good automatically rise to the top and the bad automatically rise, uh, sink to the bottom. It's just much more complicated. Um, and I think we have to remember whenever we meet somebody that who they really are, their real qualities as human beings, will have only a kind of loose relationship to what is on their business card. The business card does not sum up an individual. Um, never more so than today, I guess, when, you know, in the midst of an economic crisis, uh, a lot of people who for absolutely no fault of their own have been thrown out of work. Mm-hmm. We're speaking with Alain de Baton. The book is The Pleasure and Sorrows of Work. And you speak of the, the pleasures of work, and, and it seems that we are focused so much on, uh, what I don't know if we're all successful at it, but we're focused on at least making your job uh, a pleasure to go to, waking up and being glad you went to, uh, to work that day. Uh, at what point in time did that uh, idea of a relationship with work uh, start? Were we all supposed to feel good about going to work? Um, no. I mean, it, you know, if you look back in history, it's a very new idea. For, for most of human history, work was seen you know, simply and plainly as just a means to an income, just a means to survive, to live, uh, and, and nothing more than that. Um, and I think what you know, it, it's only when you get really to the middle of the 18th century that the first voices began, begin to be heard that argue that actually, you know, you, you can make money and see your job as a way to be creative, authentic, fulfilled. Uh, and these are very, very ambitious claims. I, incidentally, it's interesting that this happens at just the sort of time when similarly ambitious ideas bubble up about love. Um, you know, before about the middle of the 18th century, it would have been extraordinary to suppose that you would um, get married for love. Uh, that you would not only be married, but also in love with the person you were married. People got married for pragmatic reasons, you know, to hand down the family pot or plow or farm or whatever it was. Um, and suddenly this new idea comes along, you know, you, 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 can have, you can have love within a marriage. And there's an analogous thing that goes on with work, which is you can have an income within a pleasurable occupation. And we are the heirs of these two incredibly ambitious, beautiful, democratic ideas but I think they probably let down, I don't know, 70 to 90% of us at some point in our careers. So we maybe have to question the wisdom of holding on to these ideals as though it was, you know, the, the normal thing to expect of life. Uh, no one doubts they're very nice, but, um, you know, to get these things right. But, but it's, it's quite difficult. Is, is this a byproduct of the rise of a mercantile class, the industrialization of, of, um, of the world where... We didn't spend all of our time in the fields trying to just, you know, eke out an existence or a subsistent living where you actually had time to think about things beyond just the day-to-day drudgery of 
putting a... Sure, I mean, you know, in the, in the middle of the, the 18th table. century, you, you suddenly get a new kind of person, as you say, the mercantile class. You get people who, who we would call now middle class, you know, white-collar uh, people who are able to make a living for the first time in large numbers in occupations which are not back-breaking. For the first time, people are able to, uh, to do, you know, relatively pleasant work. Um, you know, th- th- they might be, I don't know, merchants, traders, lawyers, uh, politicians, etc. Um, and, and this is a new development. And these people start to get a voice and they start publishing books and they celebrate what they're doing. And, you know, they, they want to feel good. If you take someone like Benjamin Franklin, he's, a, you know, he's an archetypal modern person. He's our contemporary in this sense. He's, uh, he's reflecting the attitudes that we still have. Now, getting back to the, the pleasures of work, uh, what, what are the just... As we stand right now, what are we looking for when we're looking for pleasure out of work? Is it, it does differ than, from love. I, yeah. I think one of, one of the things we, we really look for is a sense of meaning. Um, you know, I, I went to talk to a lot of different people in different businesses, and one of the things they always said was, um, you know, if they were dissatisfied, they would go, well, what's the meaning of this? And I think what, what, what people are really saying there is that they want their jobs to make a difference. Um, we're taught to look at ourselves as people who are only interested in money. Um, but I think one of the things we really want to do is to make a difference to people's lives. And a job becomes meaningful in two ways. Firstly, when we feel that we've been able to reduce the suffering of other people. And secondly, when we feel we've been able to delight other people, to in some way uh, you know, bring pleasure, light, charm uh, you know, to, to, to their lives. And um, many jobs do this, uh, you know, not just being a brain surgeon or uh, singing an opera or whatever it is, um, but, but also, you know, if you're bringing somebody their breakfast and you see that they enjoy it, or if you're sanding a stair banister or something, um, you'll be modestly improving somebody else's life. The problem with many jobs nowadays is that the economy has grown so large, and most organizations, you know, the majority of Americans now work in organizations of over 120 people. And that's an extraordinary thing because it means that bigness is really a very large feature of, of, of kind of the modern world. And that has a real impact on our feeling of how we're affecting other people. When you're working in a large organization, you very frequently don't see the difference you're making. You, you probably are making a difference. You're, you're a cog somewhere in a machine that is making a difference. But you just don't feel it day to day. And that can lead to a sense of kind of alienation and um, a, a questioning of you know, what, where this is all going, what are you doing this for, uh, etc. It's, it's also, I imagine, because you're... Uh, disconnected from what it is that you are really producing and the pleasure that you are bringing other people. You might be so specialized in your field that you're just given a job to do without knowing exactly where it came from and are forced to let go of that job before you really see any uh, results on the other end. That's right. I mean, I, I went to look at a, uh, a, a, cookie, a cookie factory in, uh, in, in the UK, the largest cookie manufacturer, and um, I met a group of people in the back, back, back office whose job it was to ensure the pallets on which um, the trucks carrying the, you know, on which the cookies uh, uh, get around the country. Um, now, making a cookie can be a meaningful thing. You know, if you're running a small shop and you see people coming in and, you know, you sell them cookies and you get a sense of the delight it's bringing them, that's, you know, it feels, feels good. But when you're you know, when you're in a business with 15,000 employees and you're number 8,200 or whatever, you're very, very far from the meaning-inducing 
uh, feeling, which, as I say, produces this sense of, of alienation. We're speaking with Alain de Baton. The book is The Pleasures and Sorrows of Work. I was wondering, in that uh, regard, do people, are people who are self-employed uh, more content with their work? I think it really depends. Often they're more worried because <laughs> one of the things that the large corporation does is to insure you against, well, you know, sometimes um, healthcare problems, and, uh, but generally, you know, the, the storms of the modern world. Um, and uh, the, uh, you know, it's often that trade-off between freedom and security. And, um, you know, the, the self-employed person has freedom but lacks, uh, lacks security. There are, it seems to me, just kind of looking across the world's economies, uh, it, it, to my untrained economic eye, it seems that the, the top of the pyramid for work-related satisfaction would probably be Europe and the United States. And I think that they have, if that's correct, I think they have two different looks. Uh, they look at work differently. You often hear this said that the Americans live to work and the Europeans work to live. Is, is, is that a fair uh, assessment of the two outlooks? Uh, I, I think it, it probably was fairer uh, 10, 15 years ago. Um, now you'd have to go really quite far below Rome in Italy before you get you know, to really siesta culture. Uh, mm. most, most of Europe is working pretty hard and is, is no longer taking much time off for lunch. Um, but I suppose, it, 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 you know, nevertheless, your, your point kind of stands that um, these are two ways of looking at our work, yeah. and whether we're in the UK or the US or wherever, th- these are two options that are open to us. You know, uh, are we going to see work as a means to an end, uh, or are we going to see it um, as the end in itself? And, and broadly speaking, these are uh, class-based things. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, class-based ideas, you know, to caricature brutally, uh, traditionally the working class view of work is that, the, is that your work is not the meaning of your life. It's, um, it, it, it's something you do to get by. And, and your real life goes on, on on your weekends and your leisure hours and with your friends, and your friends are not your colleagues. And the middle-class view of work is the opposite, really. It's that the whole of your life uh, is, um, should be centered on work. Work is your life. Uh, your colleagues are your friends, maybe your best friends, and that's why you, know, you shouldn't take off weekends and you should take only five seconds of vacation and all the rest of it. And these are just two different ways of, of looking at it, and they reflect different levels of optimism about what work can deliver. Do you, do you look at either one as a as a, a, the better option? And assuming for this for a moment that the uh, as you said the, the the class of people who who essentially work in order to to live the, their weekend lives, if if that wasn't so class oriented, if it was something that was across the board for people, um, would that is that a better way for us to be looking at work or to be approaching? Well, I, work? I, I think. I think many people's fantasy is that their work becomes indistinguishable from their hobby. Mm-hmm. The, the, the hobby has a kind of low status uh, in, in the modern world because it suggests that somehow your job is not that enjoyable, mm-hmm. um, which is why, interesting, the, the idea of a hobby uh, goes, is more popular the lower down the economic scale you go um, because the main job is not as enjoyable, so there needs to be a pressure, uh, a release. Um, uh, that said... Um, we all know people whose hobbies have become their jobs who, who've kind of got swallowed up. Um, and there are, of course, always other claims on our lives, principally our friends and our families, yeah. and more broadly, the communities in which we live, the, the political sphere. Um, and I think we neglect these at our peril. Perhaps really all I can say is that nobody is a success in every area of their life. When, when we speak of somebody as a success, when we say, you know, Bill Gates is a success, um, th- this means that he's a success in certain areas. 
Um, and we perhaps should just become more self-conscious about the trade-offs that we're implicitly making whenever we decide that we want to be a success in one area, so we want to be a success in business. That's almost certainly going to mean that we're probably not going to be that successful at relationships because to be really successful in business means a sacrifice. Um, success in any area probably demands sacrifice. And we speak a lot about you know, work-life balance, etc. But I think I adopt a slightly more tragic view, which is we're never going to win in all, in all fields. And we should just make very sure that we understand the price we're paying um, so that we don't reach the end of our, our lives feeling that we've uh, you know, made an unaccept- paid an unacceptable price for um, our vision of success. Now, we've had a lot of technological changes in the workplace over the last 50 years with computers and Blackberries and iPhones and, and Twitter and YouTube, and they, they seem to bleed together the, the workplace and, and, and the hobby or, or the home. Has that been a, a destructive element uh, for our well-being, the, the technology, or are we, are, we, are we finally learning to incorporate that and, and make it work for ourselves? Yeah. I mean, I sense your underlying uh, point is really, uh, you know, is it okay to keep working all the time? You know, it's the proverbial <laughs> kind of BlackBerry on all the time. Yes, and tell I me. Think that, I think, you no, know, it's a problem. <laughs> I think that, uh, you know, when I was writing my book, I, I, I remember working, I remember shadowing a group of accountants who were complete workaholics. These guys were working just day and night. And uh, I remember watching them one Saturday, and they were still at the office at 4 p.m. on a Saturday. And I remember thinking, this is really crazy. And thinking about the, the Sabbath, and, uh, you know, I, I'm a secular person, but I was interested in what the Sabbath kind of means. You know, if you, if you look at the Bible, really, it's um, the Sabbath, you know, God makes the world, and then he, he stands back, and he wants us to admire his creation, and he wants us to take a, a day off to, to, to take a look at what he's done. Yeah. Now, mad idea if, you, you know, you're secular, but nevertheless an interesting idea, because really what is the Sabbath about in the context of the Blackberry? It's about megalomania. It's about reminding people that they did not create the world. They don't control everything. I think that the workaholism is a kind of desire to control everything. It's it's a sort of belief that if you stay at the office one more hour, putting in one more, you know, ounce of effort, you will somehow manage to to control everything. And I think one of the things we have to accept is that we hold some of the levers in our hands, but a lot of what happens to us is kind of out of our control. And um, we need to sometimes, sometimes just put down our tools and acknowledge that and almost kind of celebrate that, that we can't control everything. So, yeah, I think definitely there should be moments when we switch off all these machines and just to kind of acknowledge uh, psychologically that we're, you know, we're not totally in charge. So are you in favor of bringing back the Sabbath? <laughs> I know here in the States uh, there is a, uh, a real divide. Uh, between the time that uh, businesses were closed on Sundays and the present when I mean, it's, it's just uh, 24-7. I, it's yeah, I, I, think, I think that um, it, it really helps to reduce people's level of, of, of anxiety. And I, I, don't, I don't think it's just a health issue. I mean, it's not just a physical health issue. It's a, it's a kind of mental health issue, really. Uh, it's, it's, it's knowing that our society is able to carve out a piece of time that it says this is going to be about something other than the God we normally worship, i.e. the God of business. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a time when we're going to look at other things. That might be nature, your children, um, you know, culture, uh, love, whatever it is, but that there are other claims on our time and on our affections. 
And this seems an incredibly important part of a, a, a balanced life that, that we have, we're having such a hard time uh, doing. Mm-hmm. Now, hi, just personally, how, how, are you, uh, how are you working out? How, how is your, your balance of, of work and, uh, and play uh, go mm. for you? Do you think that affected it, uh, how you wrote the book? And did writing this book affect you as far as that goes? Yeah, I mean, I think writing the book helped me to focus on what I was trying to get out of my work. And I think this is something that, you know, everybody's, everybody asks themselves, you know, it, it's hard to go by for more than about a few days in the modern world without having some kind of a career crisis, without sort of stepping back and thinking, hey, is this going in the right direction or, or whatever? And I think one of the things I, I came to appreciate about work is that when work is going well, what it does is it, it gives you the feeling that you're creating something which is a little bit better than you are day to day that you're, you're able to bring to bear on some aspect of the world, and that might be writing a book, or it might be making a radio show, or it might be running a shop or a business or whatever it is, but that you're able to show a level of, I don't know, order, intelligence, symmetry, you know, intelligence, whatever it is, that's, that's slightly more elevated than what you manage to, to put together the rest of your life. Um, because, you know, most of us find our lives hard to manage at some level, and but at its best, work is a kind of refuge where we're able to do something that, that, that kind of we manage to get it together in work in a way that sometimes we don't in the rest of our lives. Now, now I'd be uh, I'd be wrong not to bring up the economic uh, situation that we face today, and that a lot of people are out of work. Uh, how do you think that there's a silver lining in this? The that people are going to maybe slow down a little bit and, and take a look at what a job means, just as you've done in this book, and maybe after, after unemployment or, or after we've had a hard time finding a job, uh, we'll be able to, to put work in its proper perspective. Yes, I mean, I think one of the things that, I mean, it's, it's, it's horrible, really, to have to speak about a silver lining, but, it, but if we have to, um, I, I, I think that one of the things that we may uh, come away with is, that we, we can't rely too much on our work as the full meaning of life. Um, of course, it's a large section of the meaning of life. And no one can deny that. But that to put all our eggs in that basket is a very dangerous thing indeed. Um, because there will come a time, all of us, when we have to stop working, um, because all of us are getting older, and so we're going to have to stop working at, at a certain point. Um, and our lives are not merely made up all of work. And we need to make sure that those other sides of our lives are kind of well, you know, well tended to, that we're, we're investing in them in some way. Um, because one day we may find ourselves you know, out of a job, um, unable to work, and we need some kind of safety valves. And also we need to, we need to change our attitudes towards people's careers. You know, um, in, in the Middle Ages, in, in England, in, in Old English, when you met somebody who wasn't doing well in their career, who was at the bottom of society, these people were called unfortunate. Yeah. Nowadays, um, people, people at the bottom of society sometimes get called losers. You're a loser. You know? And that shows something that's, that's changed a lot, which is that we hold people so responsible for what happens in their work life, and I think often unfairly responsible. Yeah. We sometimes give too much credit for the success and too much blame for the failure. And I think that the recession should be showing us that that kind of simplistic model just isn't true to the facts. Well, Alain de Bataille, I want to thank you for... Uh giving us yet another book uh, that I can add to my collection. You've done The Art of Travel, Status Anxiety, The Architecture of Happiness, and now The Pleasures and Sorrows of Work. 
Alain de Baton, thank you for being on Weekly Signals. Thanks for having me. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.